Strasvici. Hello and welcome to City Breaks St Petersburg episode 2, the first episode proper on the lovely city of St Petersburg in which there really is only one place to start and that of course is with the man who's everywhere in the city and without whom it simply wouldn't have existed and that is Peter the Great. Picture him, if you will, right at the very beginning of the 18th century, standing on the banks of the River Neva in marshland, casting his eye around the horizon and saying to anyone who would listen, this is where I'm going to found a new city. If you know the city already, or if you've seen pictures of it, then stop for a moment and think about the willpower of this man that brought all that into fruition, even when everybody said it was impossibly difficult. Today's episode then, I'd like to give a biography of this amazing man. I'd like to tell the story briefly of his founding of the city. And I'd like to finish by talking about two places in St. Petersburg today that you can visit where there's a very close connection to Peter himself. And that will be his cabin that he built himself to live in when the city was being built, still standing, and the statue of him which overlooks the River Neva and which has very much become one of the icons of the city. Think for a moment about the fact that the original residents, in inverted commas, of this area were wolves and bears. It was marshland. And then picture Peter coming along, fresh from his victories over Sweden, and deciding that here was where he was going to build a new city, overlooking the Baltic. So a city that would be both strategic, because it would be in a situation which would allow him to command the sea in all directions, And it would be romantic because it would be something from nothing. It would be a city that was built by sheer willpower, by him, exactly as he wanted it to be. In his book on Peter the Great, Derek Wilson describes this quite nicely. He writes, for example, When Peter's contemporaries gazed around at the rain and snow-swept Martian forest, it seemed inconceivable that streets of stone-built mansions, shops and government buildings could spring up along the banks of the Neva. It's worth pausing for a moment, actually, to tell you that uh, the word Neva is actually the finish for mud. And mud, I imagine, there must have been a plenty. But Derek Wilson goes on to describe to us that 130 years later, in fact, an amazing thing had been achieved. Quote, St. Petersburg has blossomed into the Venice of the North and its foundation had become a legend. So, back to Peter then, the man who made all this happen. Who was he? Well, he was born in 1672 He was the son of Alexei I. He was one of 16 children, but I think right from the beginning they knew that Peter was pretty exceptional. They had decided actually that he would be because at his birth all kinds of celebrations were held. There's a quotation here from Lindsay Hughes' book, Peter the Great, which talks about the party and the food that was presented to the people in the celebration after the birth of the prince. On the tables were, quote, confections fit for a prince, a whole spun sugar kremlin with infantry, cavalry and two towers with an eagle soaring above them and great platters heaped with marzipan, frosted fruits, candied peel and other sweets. Interesting to note actually that not only was no expense spared but a lot of these goodies would have been imported. They weren't produced in Russia at the time and that's quite significant really because Peter it was who very much wanted Russia to come into the modern era and to model itself much more on the Western countries that as he grew up he got to know. He was a pretty remarkable child. He had his own regiments of soldiers, actual real soldiers, people who were dragooned into being under his command, local young men, 
sons of courtiers, anybody who could be found, really. They were given uniforms. They were subjected to a training regime, which he devised. They had their own barracks. They had a fort. And there were about 300 of them in a regiment which became known as the Presbrzezinski Guards. And amazing though that sounds, it's even more amazing to know that before long Peter had got a second regiment underway because he really thought it was only any use if they could be made to fight each other. He was known even as a child as being very bossy and not above cruelty. For example, Lindsay Hughes tells us about one of his childhood pastimes when he would, quote, have large holes cut in the ice of a lake and make the fattest lords pass over them in sleds. The weakness of the ice often caused them to fall in and drown. We know too that Peter had his own fleet of ships which he kept on a lake near his house and that, according to Simon Seabag Montefiore, he spent his childhood doing things like, quote, playing the drums and lighting the fuses of his cannons. But at the age of ten, tragedy overcame the family. His father died and at that point Peter was declared the new Tsar along with his half-brother, his elder half-brother, one Ivan, with mum in charge as a sort of regent. And this was an early introduction into warring and fighting and trying to stay on top of other people, during which Peter saw a lot of cruelty. There were people on both sides and an army of supporters who thought that Peter should become the ultimate Tsar and other people who thought that Ivan should. And Peter saw some terrible things even as a child when people from the other side came and killed his supporters, throwing them off balconies or knifing them. And he seemed to begin to realise perhaps what cruelty there was in the world. When he grew up a little bit, at about 18 or 19, he went travelling. He was very curious and keen to learn, and he went to Holland and to Britain for months at a time, and did things like working in shipyards and working on building projects. He could see that there was so much to learn from some of the other Western European countries. It's thought that he thought he was going incognito. He gave himself a new name, Peter Mikhailov, and tried to pretend that nobody would know who he was, but in fact, this is a bit of a daft idea because he was very easily recognised. He was freakishly tall, believed to have been six foot eight at least. He had very jerky movements, a heavy Russian accent, and took with him a very bizarre entourage, which is nicely described by Malcolm Bradbury in his book To the Hermitage. So he wrote that when Peter was on his travels, he was accompanied by, quote, a hundred servants, six trumpeters, two clockmakers, four dwarfs, and a monkey. But nobody could deny that he worked really hard, threw himself into everything, all the physical labours he could find. One of his favourite sayings was, wasted time is like death, one can never recover from it. And he certainly wasn't going to waste time, so he was shipbuilding and learning how to put up constructions. And when he wasn't working, taking an interest in anything and everything. We know that he visited windmills, he went to engravers' workshops, he went to hospitals and botanical gardens and just anywhere that he thought he could learn something. All the while pretending that nobody knew who he was. This again is quite nicely described in Lindsay Hughes's book when she writes the following about, quote, the story of Peter's conversation with the shipwright's wife. Your husband's a skilled worker, says Peter. I know him well because I built a ship with him. She says, are you a carpenter too then? And Peter replies, yes, I'm a carpenter too. In reality, few people were taken in by Peter's disguise, although many deemed it sensible to play along with it. That does seem to be a theme of almost everybody's relationship with Peter, that you just went along with whatever he wanted, however unlikely it seemed, because if you didn't, the consequences would probably be dire. 
We know that he learned all sorts of things from Holland and took it back home with him and used what he'd learned very much in the construction of the new city. Again, Lindsay Hughes explains this nicely. Quote, the Dutch principles which Peter admired, the intersection of the city by canals, the construction of embankments, the formal layout of gardens, and the use of brick and tiles, including blue and white Delft tiles for interiors, were later reflected in his new city of St. Peterburg, which came to be known, amongst other things, as New Amsterdam. When he finally returned to Russia, he couldn't let go the idea of building a new city. I think there were several reasons, really, that attracted him to it. One was he was having success in battles over the Swedes, and he felt that setting up a port or a city on a piece of land overlooking the route by which the Swedes might come to Russia would be a good thing strategically. It's also thought that he very much didn't really fit in in Moscow. He wanted to leave the city and start afresh. I think he had the sort of personality which meant he always wanted everything to be his own way. So he left, went somewhere else and started a new city where everything would be exactly as he wanted it and everybody would do exactly as he wanted So a large part of his idea was definitely strategic. The new city would have a harbour that would allow lots of ships to come in. There would be warehouses for storage. He had big ideas about setting up much more trade. He wanted military and naval supplies brought in. There would be shipyards. There would be tradesmen and artisans. There'd be a large population. The city, in short, would be a success. And equally important to the economic and military objectives... Peter was determined that his new city would have status too. He wanted it to be able to compete with any of the fine cities that he'd seen in Western Europe. Many of the Europeans who would come to Russia, he hoped, would come perhaps via St. Petersburg, and he wanted the first city that they would see to be full of fine houses built in the very latest style, with elegant men and women living there, as cultured and refined as anybody who lived in the cities he'd visited, such as London and Amsterdam. As Derek Wilson puts it, quote, Peter had been impressed by the palaces, boulevards and squares created by William III, Leopold I and Frederick III of Brandenburg, Prussia. But it was Amsterdam, with its canals, bridges, cobbled urban thoroughfares and merchants' premises stocked with goods from every part of the world that provided his main inspiration. If the Dutch could defy nature and create a maritime capital on soggy, flood-prone ground, then so could he. But we really mustn't underestimate the challenge that faced Peter. The marshland on which he was planning to build flooded very easily and several times building had to be completely restarted because everything that they had got up so far had collapsed. People lost their lives and he just had them start again until they got the building techniques right and things began to go a bit better. All the while, of course, they're battling the very harsh climate and the very long, dark winters. I've seen the whole idea described as, quote, an outrage to common sense. But Peter ploughed on. For at least the first 20 years, the place was just a building site, but he pushed on, he was determined. Every summer, between 30 and 40,000 serfs and prisoners of war were brought along to work here. St. Petersburg has been called, in fact, a city built on bones, in memory of all the people who died trying to construct it. The human cost was huge. But Peter was utterly determined. At the very same time, as all these workers were ploughing on, often with no tools, moving everything about with their hands, even digging with their hands, he was giving out orders, saying that nowhere in the Russian Empire must stone be used for anything else. It must all be sent to St. Petersburg to help with the building project. 
In 1704, so a year after the first foundation stone was laid, there were 15 houses there. By 1709, that had grown to 150. 1709 was the year in which Peter won his great victory over the Swedes at the Battle of Poltava, and that's when building really started in earnest. By the following year, 1710, building had begun on the Summer Palace and the original version of the Winter Palace. By 1711, the Nevsky Prospect, so the main artery road right through the centre of the city, had been laid, with the Admiralty at one end, the sea end obviously, and the Monastery at the other end, about three miles in between. He was thinking big. By 1712, the Cathedral of St Peter and St Paul had had its first stone laid, and places like the Peter Paul Fortress and Trinity Square were all underway. As the city began to take shape, an early description reads like this, quote, Buildings were mostly constructed of brick, stuccoed in bright colours, and the horizon was punctuated by bold spires and the masts of ships. Everywhere there were patches of greenery, most of it artificially cultivated. In 1716, Peter went travelling again, to Paris this time, where he wandered round Versailles, making notes every time he got a new idea for his own summer palace, which he was beginning to plan, the palace which today we know as Peterhof. The result of all of this was that order really was set upon the chaos of nature, through sheer force of Peter's will, really, was created, something that I've seen described as a, quote, city of lines and squares and grids and triangles. In 1714, a visitor looked at the Nevsky Prospect and wrote the following, quote, The street is unusually fine with its great length and the clean state in which it is kept. It makes a splendid sight, such as I have encountered nowhere else. It was Peter's absolute desire that the whole place should be built in a Western style. He was very impressed by all the things he'd seen in Holland and France and England, and he was going to have Russia brought into the new century. So many of the architects that he hired were foreign, often Italian, and stylish palaces were designed based on the ones that he'd seen in the West. So they had to have spacious state rooms where you could hold salons and balls. And one interesting thing, he very much wanted to copy the society too and had decreed that from now on in, women would be included in high society. This was something he copied from France and Britain. He moved things along at every stage. So in 1710, just a few years after building had begun, he moved himself and his family here and all the government institutions were told to up sticks from Moscow and come to St Petersburg whether they liked it or not. A few years later, in 1716, he ordered a 100 noble families to move to St Petersburg from Moscow. He started issuing orders about how people shouldn't dress in Russian style anymore. Muscovite dress with its kaftans was banned. Western dress with its jackets and waistcoats and breeches was imposed. The order went out that all beards were to be cut off, which actually for Orthodox believers was sacrilege, but Peter was quite determined and there were forced public shavings for anybody who wouldn't comply. A royal decree went out, which was going to be imposed on practically everybody. There's a long list at the beginning talking about provincial gentry and government officials and members of guilds and citizens of Moscow of all ranks and practically everybody had to comply. And this is what it said about how they had to dress from now on. Quote, the upper dress shall be a French or Saxon cut and the lower dress and underwear, waistcoat, trousers, boots, shoes and hats shall be of the German type. They shall also ride German saddles. The womenfolk of all ranks, including the priests, deacons and church attendants' wives, the wives of the dragoons, the soldiers and their children, shall wear western dresses, hats, jackets and underwear, undervests and petticoats, and shoes. 
From now on, no one is to wear Russian dress or Circassian coats, sheepskin coats or Russian peasant coats, trousers, boots or shoes. It is also forbidden to ride Russian saddles and the craftsmen shall not manufacture them or sell them at the marketplace. I think the phrase control freak comes to mind. Peter let it be known that there were only a few days to get ready for these changes, so he seemed to think that however little money people had, they were going to go out and change their apparel straight away, and there were going to be fines for anybody who was accused of non-compliance. Peter adopted the title of Russorum Imperator, or Emperor of all the Russians, and we know that he thought that he ruled by the will of God, and that his duty was to protect his people. He certainly did do a lot of very good things. So, for example, he created Russia's first paid army. People who had been serfs could join the army instead and be paid a wage, although they had to accept that they'd be subject to very harsh discipline. Peter, again, it was who founded the Russian navy. He did a lot of things to try and tighten up Russian society in all sorts of ways. He created this amazing piece of paper called the Table of Ranks, which was really a description of society and all the different people in it and telling them where they fitted. So there were six columns for the different sort of areas of work, things like the court or the navy, and each one had 14 categories or ranks. And the point was that you could see immediately where anybody fitted into this table. So if you were, say, the head of a college, you could have a look at the table and see whether you were greater or lesser in rank to, let's say, a rear admiral. But whatever we say about the signs of progress that he introduced, we can't deny that he was a fierce and autocratic ruler who frightened people, inflicting death or imprisonment or torture on many of his dissenters. And who also had less violent but equally unpleasant personal characteristics. So, for example, he used to like to ridicule other people and he had particular things that he used to like to make fun of. A good example of this is at something called the Dwarf's Wedding, which took place just after the wedding of his niece, the following day, in fact, in the time when the Russians had just been victorious over the Swedes at Poltava, and Peter was perhaps at his most expansive and boastful. And he had a wedding set up. His royal dwarf, one Yakim Volkov, was marrying a dwarf bride. And Peter insisted on overseeing all the arrangements and setting up particularly the celebration afterwards, really as an amusement for everybody else. Lindsay Hughes is quite good on this. Here's her description of what happened. Quote, on the day, about 70 dwarfs formed the retinue for the wedding ceremony, which was accompanied by the stifled giggles of the full-sized congregation, and even the priest, a spectacle made all the funnier by the fact that most of the dwarfs were of peasant extraction, with coarse manners. At the feast in the Grand Hall of Menshikov's palace, the dwarfs sat at miniature tables in the centre of the room, while full-size guests watched them from tables at the sides. They roared with laughter as dwarfs, especially the older, uglier ones, whose hunchbacks, huge bellies and short, crooked legs made it difficult for them to dance, fell down drunk or engaged in brawls. In fact, dwarfs were a bit of a theme of Peter's. This wasn't the only occasion on which they made their appearance. So again, from Lindsay Hughes, we learn the following. Quote, the six-foot-seven-inch Tsar loved his contingent of resident dwarfs, who were liable to surprise guests by leaping from pies, sometimes naked, dancing on tables or trotting in on miniature ponies, as well as performing domestic duties and running errands. Another of his very strange ideas, also designed to frighten other people and show his power, was the fact that he liked to perform surgery or dentistry on other people, and whenever he travelled he would take his instruments with him. 
Presumably, if you had toothache when you were in his company, you kept that to yourself. In 1714, he founded a museum known as the Kunstkamera, in which he housed all sorts of ghoulish monstrosities, things that he'd collected that appealed to him, including mutant fetuses or deformed animals. It's rumoured that he had the skeleton of Siamese twins there, for example. It seems as if nothing was too horrible for him to consider, and nobody was too important for him to offend. OK, so what about his personal relationships? Well, his wife, she was actually his second wife, was a Lithuanian prisoner called Martha Stavranska, with whom he fell in love. And he really did seem to love her. She was his constant companion. She seemed to be quite up to his terrible ways. She could, for example, join in on the drinking bouts that he used to enjoy. She went on a lot of his military campaigns with him. And it was said that she was the only person who could calm his towering rages. You can see, however, that his relationship with her wasn't perfect by, for example, the fact that he became very jealous of her chamberlain, one William Monts, and had him tortured and executed, then had his head cut off and sent it to Catherine in a jar. But he obviously did hold her in pretty high esteem, because a year or so before he died, he had her crowned empress. The idea being that after he died, she would continue to rule. But it's probably for his relationship with his son Alexis that he's really held in most contempt in modern times. When Alexis was born in 1690, there were all the usual celebrations. Church services were held, bells were pealed, cannons were fired, fireworks were set off, banquets were held. But it didn't develop into a healthy relationship, not least because it seems that Alexis didn't like the military life and his father looked down on him for this. Indeed, Peter is quoted as saying to his son that really it was his way or no way, using the following words, You must love everything that can contribute to the glory and honour of the fatherland. If you do not do as I wish, I do not recognise you as my son. Alexis began, quite understandably, to try and devise ways of getting away from his father, and Peter soon began to suspect that Alexis was plotting against him. Alexis, recognising trouble, quite rightly, escaped, left Russia and went to Austria, but Peter sent people after him who were persuaded to entice him back, promising him that no harm would be done to him when he got back, and unfortunately Alexis decided to believe them. As soon as he got back, he was interrogated by his father, who said things like, quote, If anything is hidden, you will lose your life, demanding then that he told him absolutely everything he knew. Alexis was then interrogated several times and tortured at the same time, receiving blows from something called the knout, a truly vicious whip that often had leather thongs and bits of metal attached to it. Sessions were held over a number of days until, as Lindsay Hughes reports, quote, the 126 senators and civil officials who constituted the court duly delivered a guilty verdict and a sentence of death at noon on the 24th of June but the interrogation by torture continued into the afternoon, for Peter was desperate to extract more information. The next day, Alexis was confronted with letters found in his house. On the 26th, he was tortured again. That same evening, he was dead. We know that Peter was present at some of these torture sessions, actually watched his son being beaten. And there are mixed reports of his reaction after his son's death. We know, for example, that he was in the Trinity Cathedral the same evening, but in fact he went there every night, so nobody was quite sure what his motivation was. At the funeral he was reported to have been bathed in tears, but it was also said that in the days between Alexis' death and funeral he had celebrated the anniversary of the Battle of Poltava, which was always one of the lively occasions he liked to run, 
and that he had also held a party for his own name day. We do know that at one point when Alexis was pleading for mercy, Peter said to him, quote, I have not spared and do not spare my own life for my country and my people, so why should I spare you who are so unworthy? He did really seem to lack any of the normal human feelings in general and specifically when his relationship with his son is considered. Of all the reasons to damn him, I think that probably is the one that really is completely unforgivable. Anyway, Peter himself died in 1725 and a military parade was held. There was a great procession across the Neva to take his body from the Winter Palace to the Church of St Peter and St Paul where it was going to be buried. We know that on that occasion there was cannon fire from the fortress. Every minute another cannon was fired. The church bells were ringing, of course, and the procession was led by drummers and by trumpeters wearing black cloaks and a set of more than 30 horses wearing plumes and carrying the coats of arms from all the various Russian towns and provinces. When they finally got to the church, the situation there was that people were sitting in order of rank, following the grades laid out in Peter's famous table of ranks. The top six ranks had places inside, the rest were standing outside, and a Russian Orthodox service was held. The building was still in a temporary state at that stage and in fact the coffin wasn't buried until six years later by which time it had been joined by the coffin of his wife Catherine and the two were lowered down together. There was an inscription on Peter's coffin which read as follows Autocrat of all Russia, Emperor Peter the Great, born in 1672, ascended the throne in 1682, left the earthly realm and migrated to the heavenly one in the year of our Lord, 1725, aged 52, in the 42nd year of his reign, on the 28th of January. There are so many quotes and anecdotes about Peter, we could really run to episode after episode, but I'm going to end with one of my really very favourite ones from a book called Among the Russians by Colin Thubron, in which he describes visiting St Petersburg and going to see a life-sized waxwork of Peter the Great, which was cast quite soon after his death, and about which he writes the following, quote, The intemperance of a Vesuvius infuses his whole frame. I think that sums it up rather nicely. I'd like to finish the episode just by mentioning two places in the city that you can visit, both of which have very strong connections to Peter. The first one is called Peter's Cabin, which is actually the oldest surviving structure in the city. It's the log cabin which he had built in the very early days of the construction of the city for himself and his wife to live in while building went on all around them. It's said that it was built in three days and it's certainly a very simple construction. It's only got three little rooms. It's small and dark and wholly unpretentious but Peter is said to have liked it so much that he stayed in it long after he could have left and gone somewhere much more glamorous. It's believed that he and Catherine actually spent about five years living there. The cabin is pretty much as it was. It's been protected by the building of a stone casing around it, but the actual log cabin is still there and you can see pretty much how it was when it was built. And you certainly come away from there feeling that whatever ideas he had about glamorising Russia and building impressive palaces, he personally obviously had quite some love for a very simple life. The building has always been of great sentimental value to Russians and St. Petersburgers. So, for example, in World War II, it was here that soldiers took their oath before they went off to fight. They swore allegiance to the city and vowed to protect it from the Germans. And it's notable, too, that after the siege of Leningrad, as it was during the Second World War, was over, it was the very first museum which was reopened to the public. 
And the second place I'd like to mention is the bronze statue of Peter, which is along the banks of the Neva, on the opposite side from his fortress, quite near St Isaac's Cathedral. You can't miss it when you see it. It's massive and it's got an inscription on it which reads very simply, To Peter I, Catherine II. So the Empress, who became known eventually as Catherine the Great, obviously looked back with great admiration at Peter and made a point of having this statue put up in his name and to his honour. He's shown on a horse that's rearing up, looking out over the River Neva to the sea beyond. It's famous in its own right. It's one of the most easily recognised symbols of the city, but it's also well known because it was immortalised in a poem by the St Petersburg writer Pushkin. The poem's called The Bronze Horseman, and you have to speculate when reading it what Peter would have thought of it, because it's not entirely without criticism of him. So it starts by extolling the virtues of St Petersburg as a very beautiful city, but it goes on to criticise it too, because it describes a humble man who lost his wife, or his lover, in the floods. She drowned, and he's very aware that this is probably because St Petersburg was built on a marshy location. So he shakes his fist at the statue of Peter, And then he flees in terror, imagining that the horse and Peter on it are following him. And later, towards the end of the poem, he's found dead. So you could read this story as a criticism of autocracy. I'll read you the last few lines of the poem in which Pushkin is describing this poor man racing through the streets, very aware that a furious Peter is galloping along behind him. Quote, A gallop, ponderous, sonorous, that shakes the pavement, at full height, illumined by the pale moonlight, with arm out flung, behind him riding, see the bronze horseman comes, bestriding the charger, clanging in his flight. All night the madman flees, no matter where he may wander at his will, hard on his track with heavy clatter, there the bronze horseman gallops still. In her book on Peter the Great, Lindsay Hughes gives the following idea as to the meaning of the poem. Quote, Whatever other messages Pushkin's poem may contain, it certainly contains powerfully the sense that for Russians there is not and never can be any escape from Tsar Peter I and his legacy. Like an Everest in the intellectual landscape, Peter is there, impressive, challenging, daunting. So that brings me to the end of this episode, which is really about Peter and the city that he founded. And in the next episode, I plan to go through three other buildings which are very much connected with Peter, that being the fortress, the cathedral of St Peter and St Paul, and the Peterhof Summer Palace. But for the moment, I just wanted to thank you very much for listening, spasibo, and to wish you goodbye then in a word that's as authentically Russian as I can manage, I hope it passes muster, and that is goodbye, dosvidanya. <laughs>